Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. But you also had people that were very fine people. Very fine people on both sides. And the, and the aliens with mind meld and give them the technology. They're bad aliens. So the, uh, Are you surprised the Nazis were influenced by demons? No, if demons are real, I would definitely think they'd be on the side of the Nazis. Yeah. McDonald's is connected to the Clintons. They chop up the bodies and put them into the sausage and hamburgers. People are being cannibalized. Look it up. And I'm watching CNN talk about this as violent white nationalist protests. We have done everything in our power to keep this peaceful, you know? It's uh, Pepe's become kind of a symbol. Welcome to Yeah Na Passaran, a show about fascism and its gravediggers. I'm Cam Smith. I'm Andy Fleming. This week we are joined by Dr. Catherine Tabaldi, who is a fellow at the Institute for Research on Male Supremacism, as well as a postdoc at the Culture and Computation Lab at the University of Luxembourg. Thanks for joining us again, Catherine. Thanks so much for having me. I'm really looking forward to talking with you. Just to begin with, you've written this paper entitled Granola Nazis and the Great Reset, in registering, circulating and regimenting nature on the far right. What is a granola Nazi? I assume it's not just someone who refuses to put puffed rice in. (laughs) Uh, Thanks so much for asking. So, I mean, the term is a little bit tongue-in-cheek and meant to attract attention and joke, but it refers to, on the one hand, people who embrace these kind of granola styles and cultural practices that we previously kind of associated with a hippie left. So organic food, wellness, maybe some tarot cards and a little bit of yoga and chakra aligning. And on the other side, has these shows how these practices are really deeply rooted in eugenics and in a long history of Nazi practices, sort of like the green wing of the Nazi party, for example, was really into biodynamic farming. I mean, they didn't call it blood and soil for nothing. So what I'm trying to say is go beyond this idea of, okay, maybe now after COVID, the right wing is going into left wing spaces, but say that a lot of these practices that we thought were left wing actually have long roots in, well, in Nazism. Could you tell us a little bit about the research that you undertook to find out about granola Nazis? So I spent about two years cultivating an Instagram that I called Do Your Own Research after QAnon, but I let everyone know that I was a researcher. I didn't do any deception. And I spent a long time following them, looking at the styles that they used to normalize. I'm also working with my colleague, Alistair Plum here at the University of Luxembourg to do some quantitative data analysis of these. We have something like 800, 900 accounts. And we're looking at the different ways in which they describe themselves and how they normalize their information. I've also spent a lot of time talking to people who I would qualify as granola Nazis. So homesteading, homeschooling moms in particular, people I would consider farmer's market fascists, and also people in my own circles, in my own kind of health and wellness circles. Because like I think many of us on the left, I'm a little bit adjacent to this world myself. We might be very separate from kind of the world of neo-Nazis, but I think a lot of us know someone who went a little bit right wing after going to a Waldorf school, or someone who is a bit of an anti-vaxxer, or someone who is just sort of close to this world. Is there something about this world that makes it its inhabitants particularly vulnerable to, say, notions of purity or, I guess, racial mm-hmm. purity and eugenics? I remember hearing once when I was a child that 
right-wingers were very concerned with sexual purity and left-wingers were very concerned with food purity. It was some odd study out of Harvard. Um, but I wonder if there is something about that, that we've, we have often a real interest in keeping eating healthy, being beautiful, being thin, which is just has these long roots in, in, in eugenics. So there's this wonderful author, her name is Sabrina Strings, who's written this book called Fearing the Black Body, about how our ideals of the thin body are, are really built in this white supremacist notion of kind of a mix of the Anglo and the German that they decided to find like the perfect American body as tall and blonde and thin. And again, sort of the newer wave of darker Catholic immigrants who I personally take after. So maybe that's why I'm so interested in this. But so I think, yeah, I think that this world of, of, of wellness and health and beauty is just very close already to the world of eugenics. And it's quite easy, I think, to go from kind of the implicit eugenics of this to the open endorsement of these notions of health, especially after COVID when it was like, I'm healthy, I'm thin, I can go out. Why do I have to say go to lockdown to save people who aren't doing as well as me? And then all of a sudden we move from kind of soft eugenics to the louder, out loud version. You locate these ideas within a broader history of ecofascism. Could you tell us a little bit about how that works? You can look at the the founding, for example, of the national parks in the US and Teddy Roosevelt and this idea of the Rough Riders, which is still such an embarrassing name. I mean, imagine going around and calling yourself that. But this idea of bringing back this idea of conquering nature in order to build up a desirable form of manhood, this idea that we were too civilized. We were too enervated. And what we needed to do was send our men out into the wild to become stronger and to become more competitive, especially with these sort of fears of, of immigrants coming into the United States. There was this idea that white men needed to become stronger, healthier, and reproduce more, be more virile. Uh, so this is a woman, Gail Biederman. She writes an absolutely wonderful book about this manliness and civilization. And I think that we can see quite similar things now. We have something like these outdoor education programs where we send young boys to hike the Rockies to kind of develop their call outdoor leadership. But I think that this is all very much, it was at the time explicitly racially coded. I mean, they wrote about like the passing of the great race, and this was about strengthening white masculinity. I think also is this idea of conquering nature as a sort of replacement of the idea of conquering the people who previously lived on this nature. So it's no longer appropriate to say we want to go out and build this conquering white masculinity of other people or of colonizing. But we can say, okay, we're going to still celebrate this idea of going out in nature and hiking mountains and being strong. And in that way, it serves as a sort of a replacement or maybe an opening out into more explicit racist ideas. In a lot of the material you examine, it seems as though there's an underlying anxiety about uh, Western civilization being in some way imperiled. Can you describe what, within this worldview, jeopardizes Western civilization and, and who are the enemies of this healthy lifestyle? Well, I would say probably, hopefully, you and I are the enemies of this of this healthy lifestyle in Western civilization, at least I would like to be. I think that it goes back to sort of this, the granola Nazis and the trad wives. Here they overlap because it's very much this kind of pro-natalist and then the granolas are even more so often about this sort of let's have the healthiest, the the strongest, the most genetically fit. It's often also this idea of the urban and we need to get away from the urban, which is the global, which is the multicultural. And then when you're fully into granola Nazism, it's also, of course, the Jewish, right? Globalism always being this kind of dog whistle for the Jewish cosmopolitan who's always understood as too dark 
too too skinny or too fat, not beautiful enough, right? These all these images, these anti-Semitic images are always kind of like overweight, domineering women or skinny guys with big noses. So there's this whole register of beauty is linked to whiteness and ugliness is linked to this kind of globalist, cosmopolitan Jewish other. Could you speak a little bit about the role that religion plays in these movements? Where are people coming from in a religious sense? So this is really interesting. And I wonder about this because when I was doing some research on the Grenoble Nazis, a lot of them were linked to this movement called Asatru. And they were linked to this pagan religion, which was came out of the folkish movement in pre-war Germany. And it was this idea that there is a specific religion that is linked to the white race and the white body and white places. Uh, this the idea that there is a racial essence. I mean, the, the German racial essence then a couple years later turned out to be Hitler. So I don't know why they should be worshiping that. But there, there's this idea that, okay, we need to worship our old gods, our old selves. And that that's kind of almost, at least it seems like an honest belief on the one hand for this small group, but then on the other hand, you see someone like David Lane with his Wotanism, where it's it's the the kind of images of these old religions and Vikings and Norse, and they'll have runes and stuff, but it's it's made up. Wotan is an acronym for Will of the Aryan Nation, and it's just sort of a propaganda arm of the order. When the guy was in prison and he wanted to send out more racist propaganda and code it, so it was really just a worship. I mean. A worship of whiteness, but then maybe they both are. And maybe that, again, this is just different historical eras of taking whiteness and giving it a certain kind of folkloric image and then worshiping it. I mean, sort of the, the Grenoble Nazis also have their roots in, in the folkish movement and in Ariosophy, which was a similar movement in 40s Germany, maybe a little bit earlier, I'm not clear. Again, of taking up this history of the Vikings and the runes and the sort of old mythology and inventing an idealized whiteness and idealized kind of Germanic religion out of it. So I'd say it's a, it's a nice healthy mix of a kind of very cringe folklore and open white supremacy. And within the white wellness movement and also uh, I guess that the trad wife community, there seems to be a strong emphasis upon aesthetics and trying to appeal to others through the use of various images and, and rhetoric. I'm wondering whether or not that's a, a strength or a weakness of the ideology. Is it something that is used because it, it resonates, it draws people in, or is it at the same time a, a weakness in the sense that it disguises what it is that's really at the, the, the core in terms of the political vision of these movements? That's a really excellent question. I think I should start thinking about that for my book. I wonder if if it's both. I mean, on the one hand, it's a very much a strength, especially on these platforms like Instagram or TikTok, where, I mean, TikTok now, the, the, the beauty of the, of the people, the influencer is such a big part of what gets recommended that this could easily be a big strength of the movement in terms of spreading and normalizing their ideology. And I also wonder to what extent they really do have strong ideologies about what beauty means. You'll see these influencers, one of them biggest granola Nazis, I think he blocked me on Twitter, I'm very sad. The raw egg nationalist has a whole theory of male beauty as meaning dominance and charisma and a whole theory of knowledge based around beauty as uh, and knowledge as immediate apprehension and action. And then some of these trad wives really have whole theories of female beauty as meaning submission and male-orientedness 
and softness and kindness and really kind of embodying these awful gender stereotypes within the within the physical body through these ideals of beauty. So on the one hand, it is just this very superficially appealing thing, but on the other hand, it has a really direct connection to the ideologies that they're spreading. So I don't know if we can say it's just superficial, it's just marketing. I think that I think it's a really key and important part of what they're doing. But maybe I just think that because I spent too much time on Nazi Instagram. Not sure you're supposed to eat raw eggs, actually. Uh, should we just be leaving them to this so they can? It's a problem that will take care of itself eventually. Yeah, the raw people and the milk people. But I mean, I don't wish I don't wish anyone to get whatever listeria or salmonella or any of the awful things. There's a reason we invented pasteurization and cooking. Uh, but I think now they've moved on also to raw garlic, which I hear has an antibacterial effect if you're not feeling well. So perhaps they will. Work. Uh, so it's all evening out. <laughs> <laughs> I was I was going to ask before you mentioned the raw eggs. Are you, are you at least occasionally picking up a good recipe from these people? I'm not going to lie. No, they really can't cook. No. They have some. <laughs> sometimes they have. A, I think one of these women, Robin Riley, kind of the crunchy mama trad wife. She's kind of the limit, kind of in between these two worlds. Occasionally, she'll make a really nice kind of like homemade date bar and say, I'm making this for my husband because I love him. And if you ignore the fact that she says, I'm making it for my husband because I love him and I need to serve him and the politicization of it, it's probably pretty tasty. A little snack. The raw egg nationalist, I would not follow his recipes. He does seem to have an ice cream recipe, but they're also about like how to gain weight and bulk up and get a lot of muscles. I could just eat pizza, I think, and I would be happy. Speaking of Tradwives, you also have written a paper about this entitled Tradwives and Truth Warriors. Could you tell us a little bit about the research that you did for that? Thanks so much. This was one of the most wonderful research experiences because I wrote about the worst anti-feminist people I could find with some of the most wonderful feminist scholars I know. And so I looked at these two bloggers from the U.S. South, Lacey Lauren Clark, who calls herself Lacey Lynn. She also calls herself the wife, the Aragon to my Arwen, or I forget which one is which one is the man and which one is the woman in those Lord of the Rings. Very, very embarrassing woman. Who's sort of this like 1950s cosplayer trad wife. She just saw all these kind of old reruns at Nick and Night and decided that this was the life that she wanted. I think previously she was suffering from an eating disorder and working in a service industry. So I kind of understand, to be honest, why you might want to stay at home rather than go to work at Dick's Sporting Goods and get yelled at by strange men about where is my fishing line or whatever. But then she decided to become a far-right influencer and has videos like the 1965 Red Pill, why women shouldn't vote and we shouldn't have civil rights and we shouldn't have immigration. So I don't have that much empathy for her. She also cooks a pretty good lemon meringue pie, actually. She might be the one to go to for recipes. And she gets in fights with the granolas because she likes to eat sugar and they don't think it's okay. Then the second one is this woman who calls herself Dissident Mama. And I found her so interesting because she really portrayed herself as this kind of like dissident against the, the like communist government, the sort of, she calls them the globo homo ghouls. She's very into alliteration. Everyone is a trans totalitarian or a truly global homo is just this, is the slur on the far right that combines gay globalist and homogenizing, which is, I think, as interesting as it is awful. So I looked at how they kind of, on the one hand, they reiterate these old Southern rape myths, which were sort of used to regulate and keep segregation happening. And they will they reiterate them in, in for the contemporary far right. 
But then how this what this does is sort of positions white women at the center of this national project and this project of rebuilding the white nation. So on the one hand, they are advocating a submissive femininity for other women, but they're also putting these women in this like high place of honor within these discourses. So Lacey has these videos kind of trying to convince you that you want to be a trad wife. So they're all kind of filmed from the point of view. And you can imagine yourself opening the door to your loving husband and serving in this beautiful home and trying to convince you that this is a dream come true. I think it's actually subtitled like trad life, a dream come true. And there's beautiful music and it's it's something. Kat, these people are making a call to reject modernity and embrace tradition, but the tradition they want to embrace is a fictional one. They're, They're perhaps more happy days than anything that ever really happened. It, it, how do they square the circle, that this, the media that they would consider to be part of this globalist, globo-homo machine is the same one that they're basing <laughs> all of their ideas on? That is a really good question. I mean, at the end of the day, for the, Lacey believes in the 1950s. I think that a dissident mama kind of wants to go back to the Confederate South they often have very different individual ideas of what tradition they want to return to. A granola might want an 1850s homestead or a Viking hof. But what tradition ends up meaning for each of them is is gender, right? So returning to your traditional gender role or your natural role as a mother, then this kind of unites all of them. So it doesn't, at the end of the day, what really matters to them, I think, is this idea of female submission, women in the home. That's what really tradition is for them. And then I think some of them just like really awkward, weird TV. Within these communities, Kat, is there much room for workers, that is working class women? Because the models that are being projected seem to be based on very, I suppose, middle class lifestyles in which there's a male breadwinner and the woman is making babies in the home. Is this part of a a, a rejection of industrialism as a whole? Is there a, a kind of not, if not a primitivist, then a kind of a desire, not only, I guess, there's the 1950s, but earlier. Where does industry technology, what, what role do these things play? Or is it is canning jam okay, but anything beyond that a bit too technical? Yeah, really good question. I mean, some of these granola Nazis are definitely would probably consider themselves something like anarcho-primitivists or something monarchists. I mean, you definitely have often, you have very much a rejection of modernity and that's first and foremost a rejection of kind of modern cultural values, feminism, multiculturalism. But then it is very often for the granolas a rejection of industrialization. But then they, at the same time, this rejection of industrialization is very much just their own personal experience of nature, their own personal lives, and it still lives this very resource-intensive lifestyle. I mean, if you want to go live in an exurb with a large truck and depend on, for example, the internet to make your money, right? So they have a complicated relationship to kind of the, the institutions and affordances of modern capitalism. What they often do, the trad wives, okay, I think are I wrote about this in an article in Fast Capitalism called Make Women Great Again, about the way that the trad wife movement often uses superficially anti-capitalist language to make anti-feminist points. They'll say, well, your boss sucks and it's awful. And why would you obey seven bosses when you can just obey one man at home? I only have one boss and I don't have to obey my boyfriend. He's very lovely. 
I think that it very much is also a fantasy of post-war affluence, right? It's saying when you could have a, a wife who didn't have to work, this was your entry into kind of the lower middle class. You own your own small home, your wife stays at home. I think it's also a response to real struggles with, it's hard. I mean, my parents have been here for a week and I can barely get anything done. I don't know how you take care of aging parents and kids and go to work and keep your house in something resembling a clean. I mean, it's, it's a lot for anyone, right? So I understand this fantasy of making it simpler, of saying, okay, you don't need to have the second shift. I mean, I don't understand it in as much as I think that ideally both people in a couple should get to work and have leisure and help each other out and live in equal marriage. But I do understand that there are real struggles and issues and needs that these trad wives are responding to. I mean, the issue is, of course, that they address these real needs and they give them these very ideologically regimented right-wing answers that I don't think are helpful for individuals and certainly not for our society more broadly. Kat, could you speak to the role that racism plays within these movements and how it's recontextualized? Great question. I mean, I think that what the trad wives do, something like this video, the 1965 red pill, where she, you just see this woman, she's kind of cute, she's wearing a little outfit like, with the big puffy skirt and the pearls, and she's saying, wouldn't it be nice to go back to 1965 where you had this nice home, you had this nice wife, here you are in kind of the king in your castle. And it seems as though this is all they're talking about, but then this is there to represent a white world. There's, I mean, this is, it's always to represent a world that is segregated, a world that is white male dominated, a world where we don't have immigration, a world also where we could, we didn't have to say, apologize for the history of colonialism and oppression. And you see this even more strongly with the granola Nazis who are just really, they will often openly call for a return to a world before the civil war even. I mean, and then in addition, there's just the open anti-Semitism that is, exists within these movements where you blame Jewish bankers for everything that's wrong, Jewish globalists for everything that's wrong with cultural change. This is why you can't afford a home. This is why you don't have any more access to nature. This is why you have to get a vaccine, all this kind of stuff. So it's, it's I would say it's, it's sort of the constant presence in both of these movements and kind of the structuring thing is very much about elevating whiteness as a desirable identity and over blackness or other immigrants. Um, along with the global homo elite, another term or concepts that's used is trans-totalitarian. And it seems to be the case that in the last few years, transgender people have emerged as a particular focus and a target for the right, including on the far right, how is transgenderism or, I guess, sexual identity understood within these circles? Is, is, it, is there anything distinctive about the re rejection of trans-totalitarianism? And what, how is the, the kind of enemy conceived of? Like, who is it that's responsible for wanting to destroy gender roles and for what purpose? This is often, again, kind of coded as Jewish. The images of like the unattractive Jewish woman and the unattractive Jewish man are often shown that way because they don't conform to the appropriate gender role. The woman is too big. The man is too small. Uh, then in in Dissident Mama, sometimes they also have pictures of like Hitler in a pink outfit to try to say, like, you're the real trans totalitarian. So it's a little bit complicated with them who exactly they think is doing this. But it's clear that it's very important for them to say that traditional gender roles are under attack. It's very important for them to say that, that the 
the bodies and the family and children are under attack. And it's also really important because it's it's a very important normalizing vector for them. A lot of, I mean, the New York Times is publishing all this awful anti-trans propaganda. Half the people on Twitter, there was that weird vagina phrenologist the other day talking about, I can always tell. So so then they can, they can just do this stuff, this anti-drag queen story hour or whatever. The far right in the UK has now picked this up and is also using that. And they can do this in a way that protesting the existence of black people, the existence of gay people, they can't, that doesn't have the same purchase, although nowadays in the US, I don't know anymore, but it doesn't, it doesn't have the same mainstreaming appeal as anti-trans hate seems to, which is just awful. Kat, in addition to looking at some pretty awful people, this paper had a little bit of a departure in that you also looked at some cool people. Could you tell us what you found when you looked at people in the South who were, I guess, subverting things in different ways? Yeah, that was a really fun change. I mean, I have to say, when you want to do critical research, you kind of do have to look at power and at bad people. And I think it also can be really hard to study people who you like. But it was so nice at the end of this project to spend some time looking at people who do alternative histories of the U.S. South. So I spent a while with the media by Dixieland of the Proletariat and by a group called Queer Appalachia. And they they do this wonderful kind of decolonizing work. They do a lot of sexy mutual aid. This is really calling attention to the fact that the, the U.S. South isn't this backwards place. It isn't this reactionary place. It's full of a lot of amazing leftists. And when I was down there, I was part of the DSA, the Democratic Socialists, and they did amazing things like voter registration with jello shots and brake light clinics. And they were, I met some of the most committed activists and the most exciting, most left-wing, most radical people that I'd ever met when I was down in the South. So I think it was really nice to call attention to the fact that it isn't just plantations, mid-juleps, and reactionary politics. Well, on that note, Kat, I think we'll leave it there. Thanks so much for joining us. If people want to read more of your work, you are on Twitter at Kat underscore Tabaldi. Folks, we will be back next week. See you later. See you then. Bye. Tune can be sung and the words all rhyme. Though it don't say much and it won't offend if you sing it at school, they're liable to send you home. Never knowing what you're showing, think you're growing your own tea. Good Lord. Let me hear that, get me near that crunchy granola sweet Drop your shrink and stop your drinking, crunchy granola's neat Sing it out out of touch And it hired in the house and it didn't say much Diddly-dee-dee-dee-dee-dee-dee-dee-dee-dee-dee-dee-dee-dee-dee-dee-dee-dee-dee-dee-dee-dee-dee-dee-dee-dee-dee-dee-dee-dee-dee-dee-
And like a man with a tiger outside his gate Not only couldn't relax, but he couldn't relate Now he can, family man, try my brand Dig Let me hear that, get me near that crunchy granola sweet Drop your shrink and stop your drinking crunchy granola's meat Sing it out Have you experienced or seen racism against blackfellas? Report racism against First Nations people with Call It Out, an online register to expose racism. Stand up. Be heard. Call it out. Go to callitout.com.au. A 3CR supporter. Have you had your fourth COVID-19 vaccine dose? The Murdoch Children's Research Institute at the Royal Children's Hospital are recruiting participants aged 18 years or older to receive a randomized fourth COVID-19 vaccine dose, either Moderna bivalent or Novavax vaccine, or be part of a control group and receive no additional vaccine. You will be compensated for your time and transport and will receive your antibody test results. For more information, contact covid.booster at mcri.edu.au. The Murdoch Children's Research Institute is a 3CR supporter. 